everyone. Good morning. So we'll get started with the talk in just a moment. Uh, but before I introduce our speaker, I just wanted to call your attention to the slide that's posted right now. So for those of you who have already registered in the Dartmouth-Hitchcock CME system, all you need to do is text the activity code for this session in order to get uh, CME credit. If you have not previously used this system, what you'll want to do is jot down the website in the lower right-hand corner here so that you can set up an account in the system. So if you jot down that website and the activity code, that will give you all the information that you need. And I'll leave this slide up uh, while, our, while I'm introducing our speaker so you have a moment to jot those things down. All right. So my name is Julia Fru. I'm a psychiatrist uh, here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the medical director of our Dartmouth-Hitchcock Perinatal Addiction Treatment Program. And it is my great pleasure to introduce today Dr. Andre Jones from the Horizons for Women program at UNC. Dr. Jones is going to be speaking, us, speaking to us today on caring for women with substance use disorders who are pregnant and or parenting, applying research findings in clinical practice at Horizons. Dr. Jones is a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the School of Medicine at UNC Chapel Hill and is Executive Director of Horizons, a comprehensive drug treatment program for pregnant and parenting women and their drug-exposed children. She's also an adjunct professor in the Department of Psychology at UNC Chapel Hill and adjunct professor in the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the School of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Jones is an internationally recognized expert in the development and examination of both behavioral and pharmacologic treatments for pregnant women and their children in risky life situations. Dr. Jones has received continuous funding from the United States National Institutes of Health since 1994 and has published over 165 publications, two books on treating substance use disorders, one for pregnant and parenting women and the other for a more general population of patients, several books and textbook chapters. She's a consultant for the United Nations and the World Health Organization. She leads or is involved in projects in Afghanistan, the Southern Cone, the Republic of Georgia, South Africa, and the United States, which are focused on improving the lives of children, women, and families. So before I ask you all to welcome Dr. Jones, I also wanted to acknowledge and thank the March of Dimes, the Departments of Psychiatry, OBGYN, and Pediatrics here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, as well as Community Health and Population Health at Dartmouth-Hitchcock for supporting the Horizons visit and this talk today. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Jones. Thank you so much for such an amazing, um, very warm welcome. I am so excited to be at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and I want to thank the Department of OBGYN and the Department of Psychiatry. I want to thank our pediatric collaborators, our neonatology collaborators, our population health collaborators, and I'm sure I'm missing people, so please forgive me, but it is just uh, truly an amazing experience to be here and to see the momentum and the enthusiasm that is really building to help to care for this really special population of women and children. So thank you. 
Um, our learning objectives that we have today are threefold. Um, first, I'm going to just, well, actually not in any particular order, but by the end of the talk, I will have described some of the key elements of a comprehensive model of care for treating women who have substance use disorders while they are pregnant and or parenting. Um, we'll talk about some ways to apply trauma-informed care elements when working with this population, and also we'll compare and contrast two medications, methadone and buprenorphine, for um, the risks and benefits for mother, fetus, and baby um, when these medications are given during pregnancy to treat opioid use disorders. Um, as I talk about these two medications, I need to give a disclosure that currently both methadone and buprenorphine are in the FDA category C, which means basically that the FDA has not recognized the well-controlled trials that we have comparing these medications for the safety of mothers, fetuses, and children. Um, and it's also important that I let you know that when we talk about these medications, they were approved for the indication of treating opioid use or opioid dependence. And so that means when we give these medications in pregnancy, we're actually not using them in an off-label way. These medications are never going to have a specific indication for a pregnancy because they are not treating an illness that is unique and specific to pregnancy. So I hope that some of the providers in the room would find that reassuring that these medications are not actually being used off-label. Um, acknowledgements, I don't know how many of you in the audience know Dr. John Thorpe, who is an obstetrician at UNC, and he is the um, medical founder of the Horizons program that I'm going to be talking about today, as well as Connie Renz, who was our founding uh, director who's a social, work, or who's a social worker um, that helped with the program. Um, I also like to acknowledge our patients and our infants. So the randomized trial data that I will show you today really is not possible without them. And they actually give a tremendous amount of their time and their energies, their hearts and their souls, and sometimes blood, sweat, and tears, truly, to bring you the data that I'll show you. Um, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, because they've been very generous and kind and supportive of their funding. And it takes a huge investigative team um, to share with you the data that I'm going to share with you. I'm one kind of small person that gets to share the story, but it, there's a huge support. So when we talk about opioid use disorders and women, I think it's really important that we ground it in historical context. So this is um, actually the, uh, the issue that we're facing in this country with opioids is actually the third wave in the United States history. The first wave started in the 1800s. Um, and if you look back at that historical data, the most of the users of opiates were women. And where were they getting their opiates from? They were being prescribed opiates from um, providers, healthcare providers. And then when we look at early drug control legislation around opiates, it was really focused on immigrants and minorities. And in the media, we saw the first reports of women, particularly white women, being lured into these untoward um, places. And we see the very first media attempts to basically thread together drug use, women, and sexuality in a way to stimulate outrage against drug use. And we've seen those 
themes with the crack cocaine epidemic in the 1980s and early 90s, where women who were using cocaine and became pregnant and had babies that were prenatally exposed to cocaine, that you know, there was a lot of media um, fuel that led to outrage and criminalization. And we want to prevent that from happening again in this country. Um, so around the 1800s, uh, you can see a couple of examples here of actual quotes. Oh, folks, actually, I don't have to talk into that. I can talk into here. Sorry. Um, so in 1881, you can see that the excessive use of this drug by one or both parents, but especially the mother, in the case she is able to carry her child to full term, will modify disadvantageously the physical, mental, or moral development of the child thus born. So we can start to see how prenatal drug exposure is being linked to poor birth outcomes. Um, congenital addiction was first recognized in the 1880s and 1890s. And then the syndrome of opiate withdrawal was recognized. Some very forward-leading physicians actually realized if you provided morphine, to the baby that you could actually prevent morbidity and mortality. Um, and then in the 60s, where we started to see our second wave of opioid use disorders in this country, um, we had neonatal fines that started to be reported. And then in the 70s, we had tools that were started to be created. And in 1975, it was a stellar year. Actually, NIDA had um, started to fund programs that were specific towards women and opioid use disorders was one of the things they were funding. And so Dr. Loretta Finnegan, as well as Desmond and Wilson, published um, tools to help us identify babies that had opioid use um, the withdrawal or opioid withdrawal and in ways to measure it and assess it and treat it. Along those times, during that second wave of the opioids in this country, we had the um, invention or application of methadone. And so this, this JAMA article is the first paper that was really published by Dolan Nicewinder um, documenting the initial efficacy of methadone. And one of the things that I think is really important um, was that originally it was used as a detox agent, and they found that the vast majority of people, once they completed detox, relapsed to substance use disorder. And so I think that's important to note that it's not always very effective to use an acute care model to treat a long-term illness. So looking at methadone as an opioid agonist agent, um, it was not used in isolation. So you can actually see here on the abstract that they said, and I'll read this to you, um, it says that patients have uh, returned to school, obtained jobs, and have become reconciled with their families. Medical and psychometric tests have disclosed no signs of toxicity apart from constipation. And now we even see constipation ads uh, at Super Bowl. Um, this, this treatment requires careful medical supervision and many social services. So the way this medication and the way buprenorphine also works best is it has to be the medication and the supporting program are both essential. Um, then, in 1973, um, the FDA became very concerned about pregnant women being maintained on methadone. And so they actually made a decree that all women who were on methadone who were pregnant had to be withdrawn. And then we started to see some papers that came out very small, ends of ones, twos, and threes, that showed that when you quickly withdraw women from their methadone, their stabilized methadone program, you're seeing untoward effects, fetal stress, some fetal deaths, some fetal losses. 
And so the FDA actually reversed that decision, and women were then allowed to be maintained on methadone while they were pregnant. While they were pregnant. Later research has shown certainly that like non-pregnant patients, methadone um, in the context of more comprehensive care, we can reduce maternal craving, we can have improved birth outcomes. So um, that's just a sort of little summary of our timeline. So we started in the 1800s. We had an issue in the 60s we, with the returning Vietnam veterans. We had an issue. And then we had um, the marketing of other types of pain medications because we were very concerned about the treatment of pain. In 2003, that's where the tipping point sort of happened. We had a tripling of 18 to 25-year-olds that were abusing opioid pain relievers. We had task forces that the DEA and the FDA set up. Um, 2007, I don't know how many people are familiar with the George brothers because they pretty much single-handedly created the epidemic that we see in Flo northern Florida. They created a whole bunch of pain clinics. And within two years, over 20 million pills had been prescribed by a very hand, small handful of providers. And they were basically able to argue, pain, you can't really prove it. The patients told me they were they're hurting. How are we supposed to know? Um, and then unfortunately now, from 2009 to 2014, we've had drug overdoses surpassing motor vehicle accidents as a leading cause of death, of injury death. So why are women more vulnerable to opioid use than men? Um, and this comes, these data come from the CDC. Women are more likely to be reporting chronic pain. They're more likely, just like in the 1800s, to be prescribed pain relievers. They're often given higher doses. They tend to use them for longer periods of time. And there's a telescoping effect that we see with women across substances. So there's a shorter time period in between developing a substance use disorder and getting treatment than there is for men. That, again, these are data from the CDC, so that we know between 1999 and 2010, nearly 48,000 women have died of a prescription overdose, and that's 2010, so those data are grossly behind. Um, and you can see in terms of the overdoses that more women than men, um, there's an increase um, in the overdoses. And then for every one woman who uh, dies of a prescription painkiller overdose, 30 are going to the emergency department. So clearly, there's something unique about women. Um, these are data from New Hampshire. And we can see these, the graph, that, or the, the states that you see there is a regional variation in the rates of prescription opioid dispensing during pregnancy of your Medicaid data. And you can see that New Hampshire is, um, of the five highest prescribing states, New Hampshire is number three, with 34% of the Medicaid women who are pregnant receiving an opiate prescription. And then obviously, you know that your overdose deaths, over 400 people um, in 2015 died as a result of an overdose. And that is continuing to go up. And you are not unique in this, that this is a, a challenge that is happening everywhere. And so we need very careful, systematic, and compassionate responses to help people. I think that addiction is a pediatric illness. If you look at people who have come in to treatment, and the women that come to the Horizons program are no exception, our average onset of age for drug use is 15 years of age. These are looking at national data. You can see that 10% of people coming into treatment started using when they are 11 years old or younger. And imagine what we could do if we really started getting into our elementary schools 
um, to start to really have prevention, not just as a one, one shot, you're done, but if you think of prevention like we think of sunscreen, every time you go out the door and you're going to be in the sun, you're going to put it on, right? Every time you get in the car, you wear your seatbelt. We need to think of drug prevention in that way so that we can start to move the needle and not have this be such a pediatric illness. So we know across the drug treatment literature that um, the context in which we live often creates the vulnerability for women. So I don't think, I don't, not that women are uniquely vulnerable in some genetic way, but that often it's our context that creates vulnerability for women. Um, and so looking across the literature, we know that women tend to have more psychiatric uh, comorbidity when they walk in the treatment doors. They tend to have more medical complications and more employment problems compared to men. And we know that while the onset of uh, regular drug use, there really we can't find gender differences with that, we know that um, there is this telescoping effect that can happen with women who are using opiates and cannabis and alcohol, that they end up entering treatment sooner after their onset. And I think in parts because women have a harder time hiding their, um, their illness because of the nature of, of the way we live our lives with relations. We have family members we're, um, the, and lots of people looking at us and, so, and lots of social obligations, so it's harder for us to hide. Um, we also know that it's very rare to see a woman that walks into the treatment program that is using only one substance. The vast majority of our women are polysubstance users, especially if you consider tobacco smoking or cigarette use. So I think that there are important differences when we think about treatment to think about women and their differences in how they initiate drug use. If you talk to women that come into our program, the vast majority will tell you that they started using with someone like a romantic partner that they had. Whereas if you talk to men, a lot of times it's a peer relationship that brought them into the initiation of drug use. How women obtain their drugs tends to be different than men. It's very much of a man's world in the world of drug selling. And so often she has to use what she has, which is her body, to get the drugs. Where she uses drugs can be very different from men. Um, many of the women that come into Horizons will talk about doing everything they can to do it secretly, to do it alone, to do it in the bathroom, to do it behind closed doors so that their children don't see, so that other people in their lives don't see. How she enters treatment, there are a tremendous number of barriers for women. Um, mixed gender programs can be really difficult for women if they have to sit in a group room where their abuser is sitting there. Um, women tend to talk less in mixed gendered settings. Um, women often enter through child protective service involvement, whereas men might enter more through a healthcare or general healthcare setting. And how she recovers from drug use can also differ from how men do. Um, we have a, a local treatment program called TROSA that is in our, in our community, and TROSA kind of takes the model of you want to take things away from people. Um, and that might work well for men that have cars, that have jobs, that have families. For our women that walk through our doors, they've lost everything. There's nothing else you can take away from them. They've already lost their dignity. They have a tremendous amount of shame and guilt. They've already lost their children. They've lost every relationship that they've valued. And so we have to use the model of building them up and looking from a strength-based approach. Um, and that's what we found to be very effective. So what are the different barriers for women? There's I, categorize them in systemic, structural, and then social, cultural, and personal. In terms of systemic, um, 
you know, what are the three things that are least likely to be funded in our society? Women, children, and mental health. That was said in the room previously, right? <laughs> so just the sheer dollars um, towards women's, women's treatment. In the state of Tennessee, they were the first state and the only state to pass a law that specifically criminalized drug use during pregnancy. Luckily, that law has sunsetted. Um, but but, so that law was passed, but they didn't increase any access to treatment. Not one additional treatment bed was created. Where are women supposed to go? A lot of times there aren't even the doors or the beds that could be opened right now for them if they want treatment. Um, structural, their policies and practices that make it really different, difficult for women to access um, substance use treatment. For example, women, we just heard from the, uh, our New Hampshire program that women have on average 2.4 children. So if you were to go into a residential treatment facility, if there is one available, a lot of times it's a women only or it's a mixed gender treatment facility. So you have to make the gut-wrenching decision of do you take your child or do you get well? Um, so we really need policies that help address women and children together and understand women in their context. And then there are the social, the cultural, and the personal issues. Um, that we have a lot of data on, particularly very beautiful qualitative data that talk about some family members or some the way the structures of the lives of the women in which they live these lives, it's really hard for them to get well because a lot of times their partners don't want them to get well, their families don't want them to get well because they want that woman controlled in this environment in which they live. And women lack empowerment in many societies. So helping them find their voice, and I think that's one of the really nice things that gender um, gendered responsive treatment does is help women find their voice and to use their voice. Pregnancy creates a really unique treatment opportunity. I often worry about saying, making that statement because I think sometimes we have this unrealistic expectation that once a woman finds out she's pregnant, this magical thing is going to happen, right? And she's going to have this, ta-da, this like little wand comes over and you know the bibbidi-bobbidi-boo fairy says, now you're going to be okay. Yes, pregnancy can be a wonderful motivating factor, um, but it also brings with it tremendous shame and guilt. And just the pregnancy in and of itself, maybe that pregnancy didn't happen under very happy or um, elective circumstances. And so we need to think about the whole woman um, but it can be an opportunity for motivation for some women. We also know that women that have substance use disorders have a higher rate of mortality, 8.4 8 times that of U.S. women of similar age. The women that walk through the Horizon stores, 32% of them have previously tried to commit suicide. I think that's just a startling figure. Um, we know that pregnant women who use illicit substances often delay or avoid prenatal care, and a lot of times that's because they're really scared about what's going to happen if they are found to be using substances. Are we going to respond in a compassionate way, or is it going to be punitive where they have the chance of their children being taken away from them? Pregnant women who use substances have a lower prenatal care utilization. Um, and at childbirth, we know after childbirth that ongoing substances can be a risk factor um, for children's having problems later on, in part because of the substance use not just by the mother, but the other um, postnatal environmental factors that are happening. And finally, we know that maternal well-being is a very key determinant of health for the next generation. And given that we're at Dar um, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, where that's part of your mission, I think it's particularly appropriate to think about how we have the opportunity to impact not this generate, not just the present generation, but future generations to come. There's a tremendous amount of data to show that specialized care for women works. 
Um, and these are the best data that I have to look at long-term outcomes. Ying is here um, over in California has done beautiful work following women who have gone through either mixed gender treatment or women-only treatment for up to 10 years. At one year, when they looked at them at one year, they showed that the, um, the women that were treated in the women-only programs had better drug outcomes and some improved criminal justice outcomes than women treated in a mixed gender setting. And at 10 years, I think this is fantastic, 48.4% of the women had a successful outcome. Um, and while there wasn't a statistically significant difference between the women only and the mixed gender, um, women who were treated in the women only program, we know that 63.6% had not used drugs, 91.5% had not engaged in criminal activity, and 93% were still alive. So there's a lot to be said um, for treatment in general and specifically women-centered care. So what are the elements of effective women's treatment? Um, we need to not treat this as an acute care condition um, because it is a long-term illness. So we need an adequate treatment period. Giving a woman who's had on average 10 years of a substance use disorder, giving her 10 days of detox and very limited aftercare is not going to be a solution for this issue. We need to do more to have long-term recovery management. Um, it would be like taking a tree that's in a very unhealthy, diseased soil, picking it up, planting it for seven days in healthy, wonderfully rich soil, and then digging it up, returning it back, and wondering why the tree died. Right? We have to change the, the composition of the soil and the community around that tree for a long period of time. Um, there's something really magical that happens in group treatment, and I use magic intentionally because I don't know what those active ingredients are, but something really interesting happens, and women hold each other accountable. And I think that the opposite of addiction is connection. And so in group, you have the best kind of connections possible because you feel not so alone, that you understand other people are going through the same things, and they're the best fact checkers that we have in terms of how um, other people in the group are doing. So we need that individual, we need that group. Co-occurring disorders can be treated in an integrated way, so it's not just that the psychiatry or the mental health team is doing their thing and the drug treatment team is doing their thing. It needs to be integrated like, um, like uh, you know, spokes in a wheel or a clock mechanisms. So the information is being looped back and forth between each system of care so that it's seen in a unified way. I would add to this slide a unified treatment approach and philosophy of care. And I think that's one of the things that Horizons has been really um, special to have with us is that we see a very much uniform strength-based approach. So when women walk in our doors, it's not looking at you know what's wrong with them, it's looking at what's happened to them and what are the strengths that they bring to this unique treatment experience and the relationship with our children that we can build from. Um, and then thinking about recovery as that long-term process. And I know that payment and reimbursement for recovery services can be minimal to none, and so we have to be really creative about how we're using our community resources and identifying those and leveraging those. And to recognize that sometimes treatment takes multiple times before people get it. I can, we've, I think each one of my colleagues in the front row the, from the Horizons team can talk about stories of women who came through our program and didn't get it on the first time or didn't get it on the second time. Sometimes they don't get it on the third time, um, but sometimes they do. And they'll even talk about things like saying, wow, you know, last time I just went through the motions. This time, I really understand what you're saying and internalizing it. Another really um, key component to effective treatment 
or the power of words. And I think we need to be really careful in our language that we use to not use the word addict as a noun, um, to think about our, our women um, not as users, but as individuals who have a substance use disorder, to not label, um, to think about strength-based language. The opposite of clean is dirty. I've never seen a dirty urine unless it has dirt in it. So we need to be thinking about urines as being positive for drugs or negative for drugs. And it's amazing how that language has the power for the women. And when they start to internalize that women, that, that language, they don't see themselves as so sick anymore. They see themselves with a problem from which they can heal and recover. And then the last piece is the replacement or substitution ther therapy. For medical professionals, you know, we all understand that, but for lay people, particularly legislators, that seems like we're just replacing one drug with another drug. Um, and so we want to be really careful to talk about medication-assisted treatment or opioid agonist treatment. So let me turn to talking about Horizons. So we were started um, kind of in the same kind of context that we have now, where uh, substance use disorders has become a, a political hot potato, and everybody wants to say that they have a solution. Well, that happened in the early 90s in the state of North Carolina with our gubernatorial race. Both uh, gubernatorial candidates had a solution for the crack baby problem. Um, and so the governor that won, Governor Hunt, actually put some money towards starting um, a treatment program, or starting several treatment programs in our state. And so Horizons was one of the recipients of that. And so we were the only program that was associated with a medical institution. So since 1993, we've treated over 5,000 women from about half of our counties within North Carolina. And that, that data just comes from the last five years, those county data. We, we have a residential, two residential programs, so we can serve up to 25 families so moms and their children can live together. We are restrained by the number of children that can live in our programs due to state laws. Um, we have a comprehensive care program, so all of our women that are in our residential program also comes to our outpatient program where it's like partial hospitalization here, so they're spending basically five days a week with us receiving evidence-based group programming. We have intensive outpatient programming. We have a continuing care program where women that have completed our program can come back in a group because, again, it's like maintaining those connections. Um, and then we also have, that's all in Chapel Hill, and then we have a WAKE program that's an intensive outpatient program where women come three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. For both of our programs, we provide childcare. One is a licensed childcare, five-star licensed childcare for which we receive early Head Start funding for. And the other one is an informal unlicensed child care, uh, daycare. Um, our primary sources of funding, block grants, state and federal, we could not survive without those block grants. Um, our second main source of, of reimbursement is Medicaid. And then um, we do have a little bit of money for uninsured women that come through our doors. So let me talk about the different parts of our treatment. So we have a trauma-informed addiction treatment program. Um, and the way I kind of think about trauma-informed care is predictability. So it's providing psychological safety. It's providing physical safety. But it's women know what to expect when they walk through our doors. They know who they're going to see. They know what the, the plan for the day is going to be. And we do everything we can not to surprise them. Sometimes we make mistakes, um, but, we, but we apologize for those mistakes because we want to build in routine. And that's really important for our women as well as our children. Um, and then we have a number of evidence-based practices that are trauma-specific um, as well as trauma-informed. 
we have a whole group, a whole cadre of group um, groups that our women can attend. Anything from like um, yoga and stress management, dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, so on and so forth. We have the residents and the outpatient, which I've already talked about. For some women, the whole dose of treatment might actually happen at the prenatal care clinic. So we have women that come in that are pregnant. Suboxone might be a part of their care. They're going to see Elizabeth Johnson in the front row. They might see John Thorpe. And they're going to see a licensed therapist and a peer support specialist. So that the do they're getting a dose of behavioral therapy as well as their medical care. And the peer support specialist maintains contact with them when they're not coming in for their every other week prenatal care visit. We have psychiatry. We have two part-time psychiatrists that come on Monday and Thursday uh, that can see our women. They also have the ability to see our children. And then we have an employment and an education component to our program. So we have groups as well as individual work on helping women write resumes. How do you talk about your long criminal history when you go to apply for a job? How do you maintain a job? Because those skills are different from getting a job. These are the, some of the examples of the evidence-based uh, curricula that we use, so beyond anger and violence. So we have you know, Stephanie Covington, we have Lisa Najavitz, we have the matrix model that we have modified for women, nurturing parenting program, which I think is being implemented here, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, contingency management. We actually, one of the things that we do to help women get a full dose of treatment in their groups is we have a donation store. And so women that come through that have, that have signed off and have gotten a full dose of their treatment day, the next day they come in, they can get something from the donation store, get a gift card, it's a drawing. Um, and because we want to reinforce them. Coming to treatment is actually a really hard thing to do and it's really scary. And so we want to make it as a positive experience as possible. And our pilot data actually showed we were able to increase full day billing by 30 so it's economically advantageous for us as well as helpful for our women to get better treatment. Um, so the, the WHO guidelines that were published in 2014 were the first guidelines, to, uh, world guidelines, to ever talk about how to identify, assess, and treat women who have substance use disorders during pregnancy. And they were the first guidelines to ever say that we could use methadone or buprenorphine for um, the treatment of opioid-dependent women during pregnancy. They cautioned against the uh, medication-assisted withdrawal because it is an acute care uh, approach to a long-term chronic illness. And the biggest concern that we have actually is relapse to substance use. Um, we know that it's possible that you can withdraw women from medication. The most recent data that we have says you can do it across any trimester, and it seems to be relatively safe. The larger question is why would you want to do it and understanding those motivations. I think that it can be used for some minority of women, but it should not be the mainstay of the, your treatment approach. And of course, one of the biggest concerns with using medications such as methadone or um, buprenorphine is the emergence of a neonatal abstinence syndrome or neonatal opioid withdrawal. And so for those of you that might not be familiar with it, although I would expect most of you are, um, the definition of a neonatal abstinence syndrome is a constellation of sign and symptoms that includes central nervous system alter alterations, autonomic system alterations, gastrointestinal distress, and respiratory distress. It's important to recognize that neonatal abstinence syndrome is not fetal alcohol syndrome. 
So it, NAS is also a treatable condition. If we can identify it and we can assess it, we have good tools to measure it and to treat, treat it. And I think that Dartmouth-Hitchcock's done a fantastic job looking at a more a comprehensive dyadic approach um, and using more non-pharmacological approaches rather than relying on medication as the only way to intervene. Um, so. The data that we have right now shows that having an NAS in and of itself or being treated for an NAS in and of itself does not appear to have long-term effects. And we also know that the interaction between babies that have neonatal abstinence syndrome and mom or the caregiver can create different dynamics. So the caregiver has an impact, the baby has an impact, and then together create the space. So that can pose some concerns about long-term risks, but the actual NAS or the NAS treatment does not seem to have effects. Um, these were uh, data from our randomized control trial. It was a multi-site international study where we randomly assigned women to, during pregnancy of all, of all three trimesters to receive either methadone or buprenorphine, and in this case it's buprenorphine alone, not buprenorphine and naloxone. Um, and they were blinded, so every day women had to come in to receive their medication. So that means there were no take-homes in this. The FDA and the DEA wouldn't let us do that. So women had to come in every single day, and in some cases that was like 10 months if they went through their pregnancy and postpartum. What we found in our primary outcome measures, we have five there, um, it, there was not a difference um, under blinded, double-blind conditions. So mom didn't know what she was taking, and the nurses and the doctors didn't know what she was taking. Only the pharmacists did, didn't see the patients knew what the woman was taking. We didn't have the proportions of babies that needed to be treated for neonatal abstinence syndrome was not different between methadone and buprenorphine. What was different was the amount of medication that it required to treat neonatal abstinence syndrome, and that was 89% less for babies that were prenatally exposed to buprenorphine compared to methadone. Our buprenorphine-exposed babies ended up spending 43% less time in the hospital than our methadone-exposed babies, and 58% less time being medicated for neonatal abstinence syndrome. Our other outcome measures, the other maternal outcome measures that we had, birth weight, length of gestation, all of those things were not different between the two groups. So what that told us, these were the first data to really support in a rigorous way the efficacy of methadone as well as the efficacy of buprenorphine. So that gave us two medications that we could use in a relatively safe way during pregnancy. But the big thing, of course, is that um, Subutex has abuse potential. So does the combination product of uh, buprenorphine plus naloxone. And so we were really interested to know um, what would happen if, if we used uh, the combination product. And I'll get to that in just a minute. Um, we have those lovely randomized control trial data that were, so they can be criticized because it was an efficacy study. Um, but they can be criticized because we excluded all but 16% of the people that walked through our doors in that study. So we needed to look at what's the messy real world look like um, in terms of prenatal exposure to methadone and buprenorphine. And these are data from Marge Myers right up the road in Vermont. Um, and what she was able to show in a retrospective 
uh, re review basically was that I don't have, oh, I do have a little pointer here, um, was that she actually got more robust effects than, um, than we did in the mother trial under rigorous conditions. So she actually saw, uh, in terms of the estimated gestational age at delivery, oh, this isn't really, okay, anyway, I'm not going to try and use that pointer, um, that, that there was um, an actual advantage for buprenorphine having a longer uh, gestational, a longer gestation. She also saw advantages in terms of uh, less preterm births. And then as you look down, you can see the head circumference was bigger for the buprenorphine-exposed babies compared to the methadone babies. And the NAS treatment, just the proportions of babies, was 23% for buprenorphine and 42% for methadone. So you can see under more real-world um, um, circumstances that the effects are even more robust than what we see under double-blind conditions. So looking at what about the combination product, because that is the one that has somewhat less abuse liability. It's also the one that's most commonly prescribed, um, and the one that's been prescribed at Horizons since um, 2011, I think. Um, and there have been seven, seven published studies that we used in 2012 uh, that was published in 2013 to report about what those effects might be. And so we compared those little bit of data to methadone uh, maintenance versus buprenorphine alone versus medication-assisted withdrawal. And basically the, the conclusions were that the mean head circumference was significantly higher in the combination product than just uh, only with the comparison of the medication-assisted withdrawal, um, not different between the other, um, the other groups. In terms of birth length for the combination product neonates, that was a little bit shorter on average compared with the buprenorphine alone, but it was still, all groups were still within the normal range of the WHO standards of child growth. And the APGAR scores was a little lower in the, the combination product than in the buprenorphine product. But again, the um, average APGAR score was, in, was like about seven. Um, so that was still considered normal. So taken together, it really looks like the combination product isn't showing any more deleterious effects um, than other types of options that we have for intervention. These are data from Horizons that were published uh, with Sam Wigan, who's an MFM, who was a fellow at the time. Um, so these are 31 babies that were prenatally exposed to the combination of buprenorphine plus naloxone compared to met matched methadone control uh, comparison group. And what we saw was that the uh, proportions of babies that were treated for neonatal abstinence syndrome was about half with the buprenorphine naloxone compared to the methadone. And the, the peak score, so the, how bad the NAS might be at the worst time, was also significantly less. So again, that should be reassuring that the the combination product isn't somehow worse than the methadone in terms of neonatal outcomes. In terms of um, maternal outcomes, we didn't see differences. Um, and then this is a second, this is a paper published uh, from a group in Ohio that also looked at the combination product versus methadone. And the only difference that they had looking at neonatal outcomes was again the um, less uh, babies requiring treatment for neonatal abstinence syndrome with the buprenorphine plus naloxone versus the methadone, which so it's basically 37% versus 74%. So again, kind of a reassuring similar pattern of effects. These are currently unpublished data. The paper is under review in pediatrics right now, and we've written responses, so hopefully it'll be published there. Um, so there are 97 children of the 131 children from the mother study that we were able to follow up to three years um, after delivery. And we do not see any significant patterns between methadone 
and buprenorphine alone in physical or behavioral development, uh, nor did we see any unique things just because a baby was treated for a neonatal abstinence syndrome versus not treated for neonatal abstinence syndrome. So, and in looking kind of a, a, towards the norms, the behavioral norms that we used in all of our measures, it, the results so far indicate that our children born in the mother study are following a very kind of normal pattern of what you would expect in terms of growth and cognitive functioning. So, again, somewhat reassuring. So that's what talked about the mom um, and, the, and the babies. What do we do for children at Horizons? We provide childcare, both in a licensed way and an unlicensed way. Um, and we provide psychiatry, and then we provide early intervention services. For the, treat, for the dyad together, we provide parenting education in both a group format as well as an individual format. We have a fantastic maternal child therapist and a part-time maternal child therapist who actually will go into our women's residences like home visits and work with them on feeding routines, on sleeping routines, on discipline routines, so that we can help provide structure for moms as well as the children and the dyad together. And we provide transportation to and from the program because that's one of the traditional barriers that women services have. So that's a picture of Yvette, or um, Miss Yvette, you'll hear lots of patients talk about her. We call her the baby whisperer. Um, so she, she visits uh, the children uh, within the first week of delivery, even if they're in the neonatal intensive care unit. And just like for our moms, we're very focused on strengths. So what, what does mom bringing to this relationship? What's the baby bringing to this relationship? We continue our parenting education. Um, all of our children in our residence are referred for screening and, if needed, assessments and interventions in terms of hearing, language, speech, the motor development, all of those good things. And then there's that supportive dyadic uh, child-parent psychotherapy. We use a whole bunch of evidence-based tools, and if you don't know about these, I would highly encourage you to look at them. One of my personal favorites is the circle of security parenting. So uh, there's this part in it which talks about shark music, and so that's kind of what triggers mom. Um, and mom gets to look at how she was parented or not parented growing up and what she's bringing to this relationship, which I think is incredibly therapeutic and helpful for sort of breaking some of those cycles of violence and abuse. And then we use nurturing parenting, hug your baby, and child parent psychotherapy. Um, so just to kind of summarize what we provide for the children, um, and we really work a lot, and we, I can't say enough good things about Carl Seashore, who's the pediatrician with whom we work at um, UNC. He's done a lot for really kind of taking the Dartmouth model and getting more rooming in for moms. We encourage breastfeeding for the moms who are stabilized in their treatment. Um, so we provide treatment for mom, for infant, and the dyad together in a very attachment-based, strength-based way. So to summarize our model, because I've kind of shown you pieces of it, um, we provide medication-assisted treatment. About 60% of our women receive Suboxone because they have a primary diagnosis of an opioid use disorder that's severe. Um, and we do this in a very trauma-informed way across all of our intervention services. And I think, again, what's really important for us is this unified philosophy of treatment um, it, that is underpinned by theories such as the social learning theory by Julian Rotter and relationship theories and empowerment theories. So it's not just enough to provide treatment. We have to think about that continuum of care and what's going to help keep our women and our children and our dyads healthy 
and having good well-being. And so we've internalized the eight dimensions of wellness for our women. Um, so we work a lot on emotional wellness, on what they need in the environment to help them be the most fulfilling, to fulfill their human potential. Um, we help them with financial stability and economic independence. And that's an ongoing struggle for our women. Um, what inspires them intellectually? What helps give them reasons to get up in the morning that are higher purposes beyond seeking drugs? Um, what do we need to do to care for their physical, their ongoing physical um, needs? And what are their physical strengths that they bring? What are the social and the spiritual aspects that they find human fulfillment in? And working across those, we have a great relationship with the recovery communities of North Carolina and have leveraged those resources to continue to strengthen and build the long-term recovery aspects of our families' lives. So who do we serve? I've talked a lot about what we do. Who are they? Last year, we treated 220 women. Um, they have an average age of 29 years. And that spans anywhere from 18 to about 65. Uh, we have 100% Medicaid or uninsured women. What I find really interesting is that the vast majority of our women actually have a high school education. This is kind of unique when you look across the other demographics of other programs across the country. 54% of our women are pregnant, and 84% have at least one child under 18. Half of them, about a little over half, have uh, child protective service involvement when they walk in our doors. Primary substance uh, of, of misuse is uh, opiates, 61% last year, 20% crack or cocaine, 9% alcohol, and only 87% of our women are smokers. It used to be higher, and I'm not quite sure what's going on with that, but I'm happy <laughs> that that's happening. <laughs> Maybe we continue that trend. Um, average age is uh, 16. I said 15 earlier. I apologize. 77% um, come from families with substance use disorder issues, and 75% of their family of origin have mental health issues. So we see this intergeneration of mental health issues with substance use. We have huge criminal uh, backgrounds. We've had women that have come in with 21 felonies when they walk in the door, and huge rates of trauma, physical, sexual, and emotional abuse that start early and continue. Those patterns continue through adulthood, and as I said earlier, 32% of our women have attempted suicide when they walk in the door. How do we measure success? Um, we have a whole bunch of different ways. We have individual ways as well as programmatic ways. We have a wonderful database in REDCap. Can't say enough good things about that if you're thinking about a data management system. Um, personal, so they, every woman has a personal treatment goal that uh, works. They decide what they want with negotiation with the therapy staff. Obviously, substance uh, abstinence is a really important goal for the, their long-term recovery. Housing and employment. I'll show you some of those outcomes. Uh, CPS status is a big, huge one for us, too. I'll show you that outcome. Birth outcomes, as well as parenting knowledge. Our women, we are able to move the needle to show that our parents are actually gaining positive parenting skills, coping skills, reducing their stress, and so they know what to do when they get stressed. Um, client satisfaction, we routinely have incredibly high rates of client satisfaction. And then child outcomes are things that we're continuing to look at. So here are some of our outcomes that we have. So uh, last year, I think we had about 50 babies that were born in our program. Only 5% of them were born at premature or of low birth weight. And if you compare that to an untreated comparison group that was published data, you can see that obviously we're doing much better than no treatment at all. So that's good. But the other really exciting thing is that we're better than the North Carolina normative general population, which I think is pretty incredible when you think of the myriad of risk factors that our women walk in the door with. Um, and that just speaks to their power of uh, recovery and treatment as well as the care that our team has given them.
So in terms of uh, graduate family outcomes for our residents, 77% of our women last year left our residents completing treatment with a job. Um, now that job is mostly in the service industry, working at Walmart or Roses or the Waffle House or fast food, but they have a job, they're getting a paycheck, and they are so excited about it. Um, and 95% of our women had either um, maintained or improved child protective status cases. The last two previous years, 100% of our um, women had positive CPS outcomes, meaning cases are closed, families are reunited. Um, in terms of the cost savings, we're about a $3.5 million program, so we are not cheap. Um, we have a pretty hefty price tag. Um, but if you look at uh, costs that can be avoided by coming into our program in terms of not having to put babies in the neonatal intensive care unit, not having to have uh, foster care involvement, which is like $26,000 per child per year with the, um, in the state of North Carolina, not having to incarcerate women, because remember, so many of them had uh, legal histories, and that I think is $31,000 a year in North Carolina, um, looking at avoidance of emergency room department, looking at um, other types of medical services that they don't need because they are much healthier, we can actually save the state a little over $3 million. So I think that that is really important when we're looking at sustainability. Um, and then we've had lots of interest in Horizons from many different places from around the world. Uh, all these little places that have H's are places that represent people coming to us to learn more about what we're doing. And the beautiful thing is they steal all, all, what we have and we freely give it away. They don't steal it. Um, and they adapt it because it can't just be plop. It's like you can't just take one program and put it someplace else. It has to be uh, changed by the community and um, empowered by the community. And the community needs to make it its own. That's the only way it'll ever be sustainable. I think these data are really scary. So it's the, the data that we have, and it's only up to 2011, but treatment for women is actually decreasing rather than increasing in this incredible time of need. So uh, if you look at the first bullet between 2002 to 2009, we saw a slight decrease in the facilities surveyed by uh, SAMHSA that often offer women-centered services. Mishka Turplin published a paper in as of 2011, only 32% of all drug treatment facilities offered specialized treatment for adult women. Um, so. We, we need to change that. That has to change. And hopefully with the federal legislation that's happening, um, maybe we'll, we'll be able to really move the needle and start to reverse this incredibly concerning trend. So what can you do? Every single person in this room can do something. Um, first, you can recognize and include the myriad of issues that are facing women. So it's not just a woman with a substance use disorder. It's a woman that has a family, that has a, a life that's often very complex and complicated. Um, and so to recognize that and contextualize that, especially if you're a researcher, it's not just a simple linear effect of a woman uses drugs and then there's a bad birth outcome. It's much, much, much more complex than that. Um, we need to challenge common assumptions. The substances that we know the most about that are most harmful are actually our two legal substances. That's tobacco and alcohol. And we need to do a better job of rec recognizing that. Um, and also recognize that there's a continuum of drug use. So there are, there are women that use that do not have a substance use disorder problem. The women that we see, are it's really the end of the line for them, and they're the most severe of the severe in our state. But to recognize and remember that there is a continuum, um, and that urine tests are 
And one important piece of our whole treatment continuum or our diagnosis continuum, but it is not a parenting test and it does not diagnose a substance use disorder. So they can be used, but it needs to be really carefully thought about how those tests are going to be used. On an individual level, um, you can help give strength-based support to the women. Anybody that encounters a woman in this room that has a substance use disorder, you have a chance to make her life better. When you talk to somebody, you're either making them bigger or you're making them smaller. And so think about that. Are you giving them compassion and helping them to have a better day? Or are you demeaning them and belittling them and making them feel bad for what they've done? Be careful in your language choice. So that was that language about the power of hurting or healing with our language. Think about pictures and visuals. If you give talks about this, or you're talking to women about this, what do the pictures look like and what do they convey? Pictures say a lot more than words can say. Tell the stories of recovery and success. We have um, many, if we only look at sort of the end stage of this disease or people that are in active addiction, it looks incredibly hopeless, where there's so many millions of people. There was a survey done by Faces and Voices of Recovery. 10% of the American population is identified themselves as being in recovery. So there are recovery stories out there. We just need to find them and promote them. Um, and be familiar with toolkits. ACOG's got a fantastic toolkit for working with on state legislation. From a structural level, we need to assess appropriate identification, assessment, and treatment across the lifespan. So start, let's start with the pediatric population and move towards even old age. There are data to say that older women are now, um, create, there's a context that's creating vulnerability for them around opiates in particular. Access to whole health care, which I know you all are working on, tobacco cessation support, and hospital policies, which I think um, I know Allison is really working on to help move that needle with quality improvement. So to summarize, um, hopefully I've described some of the key elements of a comprehensive model from residential to outpatient to trauma-informed care, transportation, child care, um, identifying trauma-informed care, being predictable, having a strength-based approach, and then we've compared the uh, risks and benefits of both of the medications that we have available to us to use to treat opioid use dependence during pregnancy. And I will end with this quote. There is no such thing as a baby. There's a baby and someone. And so the women, the women that you touch, if you want to help the babies, the best way to do that is let's help empower the women. Thank you very much. Questions? Okay. Questions? Oh, don't be shy. I know I'm standing between you and lunch. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't all speak at once. <laughs> okay. They're spellbound. Yeah. <laughs> I think they all stayed awake. <laughs> so thank you. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Jones. Uh, I just wanted to mention that for those who um, are able to stay from now until one, we have the great privilege of having not only Dr. Jones, but also three members of her leadership team, Mark Strange, um, Senga Carroll, and Elizabeth Johnson here, who will be happy to talk more about their program and answer questions. Um, but we do, um, we did uh, put together a lunch for people who are able to stay, and that's um, with thanks uh, to the generous support of March of Dimes for that. So I'm going to ask that we let the team go into the next room and sort of grab a plate for themselves since we're going to make them talk during lunch and then anybody who's able to stay can also head in there after them um, and get something to eat and then we'll reconvene